Welcome to the WCAPS Vibe podcast series. WCAPS is an online community dedicated to strengthening the leadership and professional development of women of color, specializing in the fields of peace, security, conflict transformation, and foreign policy. Join us as we unpack their valuable perspectives, learn from their strategies, and grow together. Vibe. Vision. Impact. Voice. So, so Warla, do you want to kind of set the stage? I mean, I think everyone knows why we're here, but maybe you can set the stage for us so everyone gets into the mood. <laughs> sure. So the reason we're doing this is basically we've had, like, I think it's been a difficult year. We were already going through a pandemic. And then, you know, we saw incidents that I don't think, you know, we saw murders on TV. We saw murders on the news and going and just being in a mental health state that was already not great, but then also just having enough in general with the state of affairs and something that, again, is not a right now issue that has always been an issue, but maybe the the circumstances just provided it for us to start a movement in a way where everybody felt like they had to be involved, no matter what is the color of your skin. Where I think for the first time, it was not just upon people, Black people, to be the ones leading a movement where other people felt like there is a responsibility that it's actually on non-Black people to uh, solve this particular problem. And I think we kind of saw that incident happen. Lauren and I were going to catch up, I think, the next, the weekend after the killing of George Floyd. And her and I and Lisa, we were on a phone call, we were catching up and it was just like a vent session. And we were able to kind of just express how we were feeling in that moment. And somehow that conversation, which was a catch up conversation, ended up becoming, what can we do? And I recognize that a burden is always placed on women of color or people of color to carry the burdens of representation and being the solution to problems that are not ours. But we wanted to figure out that what are actionable things that we can do while we grieve. And one of the ideas that came up was, if only we had a way to record that conversation and share it with other people. Because I don't know if people who, those who are not women of color, can actually, are, are they even having these conversations or are they even listening to this side of, you know, this point of view? And so we thought, let's do a podcast where we can have like a discussion the way we would on a phone, a phone call or around a table um, if this were pre-quarantine times. And let's share the conversations that we have with each other with people who are willing to educate themselves who are willing to be allies, who are willing to share the mic and, and, you know, for them to just be able to listen to this, but then also recognize that or identify what it is that they can do to solve uh, racism and discrimination, not only in our field, but also I think in our country at large. So that's what I have. I don't know if Lauren, if you want to add anything from that particular kind of phone call that we had or thoughts into how this came about. Yeah, no, I, th- I think you, you covered all the important aspects of it. I think 
in addition to our phone call, uh, our conversation, I think it might have been that same week or a couple weeks later, uh, there was a broader WCAPS uh, conversation that grew out of um, you know, Marina Robinson Snowden's feeling that women of color really needed a space and a forum to you know, kind of step outside of our office spaces because we might not have been receiving the support that we um, maybe needed at that time and to come together uh, and talk about issues um, at the time that really affected women, people of color in a, in a way that could possibly be ignored by our um, non-minority uh, colleagues. So that provided a space for us to have conversations that were really important as well. So that's, I think that was another motivation for this. And, and we felt that it was important to create a forum where we could share conversations that could then be um, shared with the broader populations that they understand the issues that are important to us and that we're thinking about during this time. And, you know, just things outside of your normal day-to-day -day work that affect us all as we go into our workspaces and as we work in the national security space. So I think that's the, those were the motivations. So why don't, why don't each of you introduce yourselves and then we can uh, go into the, uh, uh, this is a great introduction. So let's introduce ourselves. So why don't we start, Warla, you already spoke, and then Lauren, and then we'll have our other uh, distinguished panelists, speakers or whatever, introduce themselves. So Warla. All right. Well, my name is Warla Amir. I am a, I co-chair the WCAPS Chemical, Biological, Radiological, Nuclear Policy Working Group uh, with Sylvia Mishra. And I also am a NNSA graduate fellow at the National Nuclear Security Administration, just spelling out the acronym. Lauren? Hi, everyone. I am Lauren Williams. Um, I'm a member of the working group that Warda and Sylvia share, chair, rather. And I also work at the Department of Defense, but will disclaim that all of my views are personal. They don't represent the department itself. Thanks. Sarah? I'm Sarah Plana. I am currently a PhD candidate at MIT in security studies doing my uh, research on proxy warfare, but widely have commented and, and done research on international security. And I'm a member at large of WCAPS. I'm really grateful for the community. Great, thanks. Uh, Erica? Yes, I'm Erica Wolf. Uh, I am currently a policy analyst at the National Nuclear Security Administration, the Department of Energy, in the Office of Policy and Strategic Planning. And I recently just joined that office. Previously, I was also a graduate fellow in the uh, Graduate Nuclear Security uh, Fellowship along with WARDA. We were in the same office. And so I'm also an at-large member of WCAPS. Very proud of that and excited to be here. Always excited about the space that provides us to be able to talk about these issues and topics in, in national security, at-large nuclear security. And it just provides such a unique space for us as women of color to do that. So I'm grateful to be here. Great. And my name is uh, Bonnie Jenkins, and I am the executive director of WCAPS. So thanks for your input, uh, Wada and uh, Lauren. Why don't we hear from uh, Erica and Sarah, some of your thoughts about what's been happening and your perceptions about the situation right now? Sure, I'm happy to jump in there. You know, I think, you know, one of the things that really struck me is, you know, Wada spoke about We've how we've been in these situations where we've seen the horrific events that have taken place from police brutality and other forms of just kind of, 
you know, what is not supposed to be state violence against individuals and particularly Black men. And so, but this time really struck me as a time that was very different. And I think because the response itself Yes, I think it's definitely reached a much broader, a louder, and just international. It's gotten international attention, obviously, but to see the response itself, I mean, we've now gotten to the point where I'm seeing, you know, the Black Lives Movement, I do feel like uh, Black Lives Matter movement has gone so much beyond, you know, not just, it's not just Black people, it's everyone finally connecting to an issue and saying, this is a human issue. This is human rights. This is civil rights. This is all of us. And the fact that this happens to one person, it's happening to all of us. And I think in particular, you know, that the horrific video and that cry for his mother, you know, in just minutes before he lost his life, it's just something that, you know, I think you just can't walk away from the same. And so I think the response has been unique, but also, you know, in particular, and how it, I think it even relates to our national security and our national security space is the fact that finally people are taking what has happened in this one situation out on the street and they're saying, oh my goodness, how, what, first of all, what have I done to ensure that you know, this isn't happening in my workplace. This is not, this isn't, you know, when we talk about racial justice, like how does that transcend into the space that I occupy in my career? You know, not just in my personal life, but also in my family space, you know, what kind of conversations are we having in my family? And what are, so I just think it's really just transcended, you know, just beyond just watching the video. And it's something that has happened in this, you know, out on the street somewhere, but we're bringing it home to every single aspect of our lives, personal and professional. Great. Thanks, Sarah. Well said, Erica. I agree with everything that you would say that you said. And I think one of the things that struck me, so I'm a Latina and it's the response has been wide ranging in all the ways that you outlined, but also has been what something that has struck me is how much even communities of color are grappling with racism and colorism within our own communities, something that I've seen in the Hispanic and Latinx community in this country. It's been exciting to see the openness to learning. This is something that excites me about the conversation that we're having today, I think, because I'm just excited to hear what we come up with together. And I do think that there's going to be a receptivity this year that really maybe wasn't there, not nearly as widespread as it has been in the past, including in our own community, but even beyond the national security community. And I do think that it's important to keep up the momentum on a lot of these issues, given that there is so much going on and and our space, especially national security, is never quiet. But these issues are important and they touch on many people's lives, American and otherwise, And I'm just excited about what WCAFS is doing to keep our eyes on the ball here. Great. And how, I mean, how does one keep, let's dig a little deeper on that, Sarah. How does one keep the sustainability on this topic? And you mentioned so many things happening. It is, and we're still, we still even haven't had our elections yet. So, I mean, and the real push that's going to happen in the next few days. I mean, how do we keep attention to this? Good question. I think forums that center voices 
of people of color, especially black voices, I think are really important ways of institutionalizing that. So WCAPS's programming is like a number one for this, but also initiatives like Share the Mic and just like keeping pressure on institutions to, to continue making concrete and regular and frequent ad advancements in centering black perspectives, I think is, is probably the way to go, normalize having black and brown faces and on panels, normalize having their perspectives on podcasts. Sadly, I think a lot of it will have to be bottom-up pressure of a lot of the organizations that we are a part of or are affiliated with. But I'm curious how other people are thinking about keeping the momentum alive. Anyone else want to jump in on this question? Personally, I think it's like a very person, like it's such a personal kind of commitment that we all have to make to wanting change. And yes, our organizations need to change, but I also think the people within need to take the onus upon themselves to like be committed for a very uh, different culture than we're used to. And I love something that Erica said a little bit er earlier, and I just want to highlight that I think that's where a thought process that our country is going to kind of have to come to and think about as a result of this movement. An issue that affects you is an issue that should affect me. I can't just keep caring about things that affect me selfishly. I need to care about an issue that affects any community. And we need to kind of unite as a country to be there for each other when issues affect each other. And I think over the years, I personally being a Muslim American, you know, discrimination for us has just been a thing since, you know, proposed 9-11 was a thing more personally, personal for me. But, you know, I, I've, I was lis listening to somebody who's a Muslim American who kind of remembered facing Islamophobia after 1979, you know, based off of incidents that, have, that were going on in Iran and all. And I personally just think that Islamophobia is not a problem that's supposed to be dealt with by Muslims in the same way that police brutality is not a, a, a thing that needs to be dealt with by black men. We all have to kind of take issue with these problems until we actually feel bothered by it and acknowledge that this is not a black man or a Muslim or, you know, homophobia is not a gay man's problem. That is when we are actually going to end up uh, taking ownership of some kind of action that we can do in our abilities to solve the problem because the solution is actually not going to come from the people who are impacted by the issue, but those who actually aren't affected by it. And this is actually, uh, what you're saying is actually important because it also raises the issue of um, allyship. And, you know, is there someone who would like to, in their own perspective, define what is a good ally in, at this moment? Yeah, that's, all of these are great questions. I don't know if I can, if I have a succinct definition for it, but I think what it, maybe what it looks like and what it feels like, particularly in our workspaces, and I was thinking about this in relation to the question before as well about sustainability, I think that being an ally right now and, you know, making what to some people might seem like a trend right now and, and you know, on the issue of diversity, equity, inclusion, what makes, will make that sustainable will be people, and I, I, by people I mean probably people in, my, in the majority of communities 
willingness to have uncomfortable conversations, willingness to look inside their organizations or look around and say, oh, like I haven't noticed before that I am in a room with people that all look like me, that I feel so comfortable, you know, being in this room, but I haven't even noticed that there's that one person of color. I know that we all have been that one person of color in the room. And so looking around and not have, maybe being an ally is not having to wait until that person of color, you know, approaches you or raises that issue to you, but recognizing that there's no way that they're not feeling pressure by being in that space as you know, a representative of so many different categories just for all of us, women, people of color, younger person in the room. So recognizing that that can't be the way we go forward, that's not okay for, for rooms to be homogenous and being willing to, you know, in a respectful way, a way that's not alienating to people of color or makes us feel like tokens or those kinds of things, have those hard conversations and say, what can I do uh, in my organization to change this going forward? And I think that gets to the sustainability part, because if we allow, if organizations, you know, allow this moment to just be a trend and they're not willing to look internally, then, you know, maybe in months or a year from now, when police brutality might not be the top, you know, thing on everyone's mind, then we just have the same issues again. And the issue gets swept under the rug and we don't make any meaningful changes. So I really think that those being willing to have those uncomfortable conversations is the core of it. And actually, if you, if you don't mind, Ambassador Jenkins, I wanted to um, loop this back to you a little bit and ask about your perspective on the pledge that WCAPS uh, started, like the movement that you started maybe a month or so ago, right after George Floyd's killing. And, you know, that lots of really big organizations around DC and other places signed on to. What's your sense about how sustainable, you know, the commitments that, that those organizations have made might be? Do you see big changes happening from that? It's probably a little too soon. I think what I have seen is that organizations are having these conversations um, and they're, they're asking themselves questions about what we can do. We had a, a discussion last week with the organizations and we're going to have another one next week. And so it's been, we've only had one, but so far it's been pretty good. So we'll see. I mean, we're we're very serious about continuing this and, and making it go forward and, and making sure as much as we can that organizations are, they stay committed to the 12 things that they said that they would do in the statement itself. So it's still early. You know, we're taking our time trying to pull together, you know, a format to make this go forward. We're developing working groups in which everyone's going to be working together. And, you know, so we'll see. We'll see. So far, it's pretty good, but we'll see. Thanks for thanks for asking. <laughs> no, that, that's great to hear because it, that, that also hits on sustainability. It wasn't, you just didn't give up with people signing their names, you know, to a document. So I'm, I'm excited to hear that there's going to be continual engagement and conversation mm -hmm. across the organizations about how to actually implement some of those changes. Mm -hmm. That's, that's exciting. Mm -hmm. and, and one thing I'd like to ask all of you is you all, I mean, you all mentioned that in your, you're all in the national security space. And so this is an opportunity to talk to your white counterparts about, you know, why this matters and, you know, why this, why these issues of racism and, and discrimination and police brutality matters in national security. Because I think there's still a lot of people who can't quite figure out the connection. Right. So I would love for all of you to, to give your, your thoughts you know, to your counterparts, to your, you know, your non-people non of color counterparts about why they should care or why this matters or why 
it, it impacts their work, even if they don't really realize it. So we'll start with you, Erica. Sure. Yeah. You know, I, as we were just talking about the response and, you know, and how to really, you know, take this moment and make it into something meaningful and lasting. I was thinking about, you know, the conversation that I had with someone who was sort of a a team lead. It wasn't a, um, not my direct supervisor, but someone who was in a position of more influence than me in the organization. And I thought it was really powerful because, you know, here he is, he's a middle-aged white guy, and he reached out to me personally and asked, you know, this is the first, and, and actually, you know, said, this is the first time that I've had a conversation like this. It's uncomfortable for me. I don't know the right questions to ask. But I felt comfortable enough to reach out, you know, to you and say, you know, what should I be doing? What can I do? And, you know, I was really grateful for that discussion because it was one that, to be quite honest, I think in my professional career, I've never had, you know, someone who was a white male who said, you know, I'm open, honest, and vulnerable in this moment asking you, what should I be doing? Because this is just something that I have, I don't know anything about. I didn't know it was going on because this is just not my experience. And so, you know, and I think having, like you said, Lauren, having those very honest conversations, even if they are uncomfortable and creating a space for that is going to be important. But, you know, one of the things that came up in our discussion and, you know, I, you know, talked a little bit about, you know, my own experience and those things that he might not have had any insight into. But one of the things I did talk about was this idea, you know, you are in a position to do something, especially if you're hiring people and you're, you know, you're, you know, you have the ability to influence what your organization looks like at the highest levels and, you know, and ensuring that it is reflective of you know, not just the country, but is it reflective of the, diver- the, div- the diversity of America? And so, you know, it's not enough to say, and, you know, the worst I think I've ever heard, and I hate when I hear this, oh, you know, there aren't certain people who are qualified for this very technical, very specific, <laughs> you know, role. Yeah, I don't buy that. So, You know, it's just getting beyond that and creating excuses and knowing that there are plenty of people who are out there, black and brown people who are out there who can fill these roles in these positions and they're qualified. And we're not just making sure that they know about the opportunities and that they're applying, but that hiring managers are conscious of their own biases um, so they don't stop them from getting hired and into these positions and really becoming a part of these organizations. So I think just having those very real discussions and to say, you know, and challenging people. I I think another thing that I've really loved to see is, you know, uh, as a part of the response, you saw different organizations, you know, posting pictures of their board of directors and what they look like, you know, and it's just, you know, that is just one way of, of challenging some organizations and saying, you know, is this really what America looks like? Have we really done the best that we could to ensure that we have, you know, equal representation? Yeah, I actually was thinking a little bit about the ways in which our community uh, needs to be introspective about how hiring 
sort of perpetuates inequalities, inequalities that are racial, but also sometimes they're not racial, they're also, or not only racial, but also classist and, and other dynamics. I think Erica mentioned it's, there's several phases, I think, about it. There's like, what opportunities do different populations know even exist? And as we know, information is power. And I think in the national security community, it's a pretty insular community and there are high barriers to entry. And so I think it's imperative upon us and those who are in hiring positions, especially to think about what are positions in national security or think tanks or other opportunities that are only known to those in the know. And in which ways is that sort of creating or perpetuating inequalities and solutions here are things like maybe having transparency in think tanks about how to get non-resident affiliations, how to get actual affiliations or fellowships, transparency in government about a full list of potential civil servant jobs, something that's actually available for political appointee jobs. But then there's also the sort of um, obfuscation over pathways into political appointments, which tends to be disproportionate for different populations, especially outsider populations. And so, but then the the first path of even knowing what jobs are out there or what opportunities are out there, then there's the sort of gatekeeping that sometimes happens in our community. So which opportunities, even if you know exist, are only available to folks with connections? What, how are those connections made? Are they only available to those with family or friend connections or elite educational attainment or some form of like very esoteric criteria that may have disproportionate effects or or sort of asking differently of different sorts of folks that we actually do want to recruit? And also are some public service opportunities only available to those who can afford them? And I think there should be some introspection about how much we pay entry-level positions in national security and how we try to recruit and retain through compensation and the levels of compensation, which I know is a sort of perpetual debate in our community, but should not happen separate from conversations about race and diversity in our ranks because they are cross-cutting issues. Great. Thanks. Who are that? Well, I, I mean, I really just appreciate the conversation that and the points that have been raised by both Eric and Sarah so far. And, and one of the things is the amount of when going through grad school in DC, not cheap. Um, then you kind of are looking for internships or that entry-level opportunity. The amount of unpaid internships in DC, plenty. But why not? But there's a lot of them, but there's an opportunity to get selected for all of them. But then also there's, for those who cannot afford to do an unpaid internship, then this does not become a liable career path for you. And so we're automatically kind of being discriminated, we're discriminating with who gets these opportunities and who doesn't. And so you, it really is one of those things where it's almost a privilege to be able to do an internship in the national security space or in the international peace and security space, even anywhere else, including in inter- international organizations around the world, which I personally find very ironic for, you know, organizations to, some of these organizations, they're talking about human rights, they're talking about you know, uh, all these other issues, but then not even fairly compensating their hardworking interns and almost paying them nothing for the work that they do. And this is something that I think deserves attention because till we make these opportunities more accessible to people, whether it be by providing the opportunity to do them remotely or 
by actually paying the people who are do doing those opportunities, we're not going to see a changed pool of applicants who are applying to these positions because it requires people to come with a certain amount of resources to be able to even be eligible for such opportunities. And so I think just from the entry point barriers, I personally also like to speak about the barriers that are felt from the more cultural demographic point of views. We're not, I don't think all demographics feel welcome in the security space yet. Vanya, I know we were on a call recently, and I, I am going to probably be a little bit repetitive uh, from that particular call, but the idea for my particular community, I just feel when you've grown up in a post-9-11 world and you have felt growing up that you are somewhat a threat as a Muslim American, how is that person supposed to feel welcome in the national security space and being part of the solution to a problem that was always associated with you growing up? And so it's just one of those things where we, are we being welcoming from this end with how we're branding uh, why we want these people to join? When you see a picture of a hijabi woman, you know, wanting to be recruited by the CIA, do you want her as a counterterrorism tool or do you want her because she's an American and she belongs and she has a voice and she has a lot to offer in this policy space? And that's something that we need to work on here within the national security space on how we're targeting these people and why we want them in this space. Why do we want diversity? But then also from that end, I think within our communities, it's important to tell our own people that they do belong in this space, that they have an option and their voice at these tables matters for policies that are not only made nationally, but also internationally. And that impact will be felt worldwide. That sounds great. I like, I like the, the concept of dialogue that needs to take place that doesn't take place at all. You know, and I like this, I like the, the idea that the internship is a privilege and you know, it's becoming much more of a, you know, a select privilege for a certain few. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, it's so true. So I, like, I like the way you, you put your spin on that, on that point. So Lauren, please, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I'm loving this conversation already because I, I feel like all, all three of you have hit on, like gotten to the heart of the issue really quickly. Thinking, Erica, you were saying that, you know, and I've heard this too, this point from uh, people who are in positions and able to hire of, you know, I would love to hire more people of color or, you know, I would, and they genuinely would, like they'd like to see a more diverse group of people in their offices, but they don't know how, or they're not sure, you know, why they haven't been able to attract those candidates. And at the end of the day, for me, I just, I think that we really can try a lot harder. I think there are a lot of strategies that we're not trying and that we haven't, you know, put the effort into in the past, uh, just because we've been complacent with the way that the national security space looks now. And, and all of you, um, Sarah, Warda, Eric, you all hit on it. I think um, I'm having, having done several unpaid internships because my university was able to fund me and I was able to find different ways to fund them. I'm like morally opposed now <laughs> at this point <laughs> to unpaid internships because unless you can, you know, you are at a university, like a private university that can, you know, afford to do that kind of thing um, as a student who wouldn't be able to shell out, you know, 5k, 6k just for one summer. There's just no way that you can do that. And I know that having those opportunities that I was able to, you know, be funded by my school to do, then set the stage for me to be able to have the opportunities that I have now. So if, if not for those, I, I wouldn't have had 
wouldn't have been able to get where I am today. And that's just such a rare opportunity. It's not accessible to most people. And I'm grateful for the opportunities that I've had, but I would much rather see many, many more women of color, men of color have exposure to the type of places that I've been able to be in. And another part of it is, you know, because of the universe, universities and opportunities that I've had, I've been able to hear about other opportunities through word of mouth. And I, I realize that now, like the, I, I would have never found my way into the Department of Defense as an intern. There's, there just aren't, it's not publicly very uh, available. That's just one example of an internship that I only heard about through word of mouth. And I think that's just the way that the space has operated for a long time and we've been comfortable with that. So I, I think there's just, there's a lot of practical changes that we can make to make sure that many, many more people get the opportunity to get experience in this space um, so that they can go on to a career that they you know, probably would be passionate about to get into the public, the public service space. And then at the heart of it, I think the, the outcome that we would then see, and I think you said this earlier, Erica, I'm repeating, is that you know, we want the public service space, we want the national security space to look like the people of the United States of America. You know, how can you represent the United States of America when the delegations that we're sending out do not look like the United States of America? And you know, I know for us who worked at the National Nuclear Security Administration and had lots of incredible international experiences, we were often checking all the boxes of <laughs> diversity as we go out to the international community. And if we weren't there, there would be none, you know? So that's, you know, I think we're, we're setting, paving a path for women who will come after us, but it just shouldn't be that way. And I, my goal, my, you know, desire and what I'm, you know, passionate about mentorship, the reason I'm passionate about mentorship and, you know, having different opportunities is because I don't want that to be the case after me. I want it to be normal for the people who, conduct U.S. foreign policy or conduct national security to look like the United States. And that's kind of the, the nitty gritty <laughs> aspect of it for me. And so I want to I I push you on that point a little bit, Lauren, because I think it's an excellent one. And, you know, one of the reasons, as you probably know, I started WCAPS was because I wanted to diversify this field of foreign policy and national security, peace and security at large. And one, because I knew that there were women of color and young women of color, mid-career women of color in these fields, maybe not as much in the, in the weapons and mass destruction field, which is still very challenging. But I knew one, that there were women in these fields and there was no network and, they, and people didn't know who others were. And I often heard, and I still do, you know, I'm the only one in the field. I don't know anyone else. And I feel discouraged or lonely because there's no one like me. And also to encourage young women to get into these fields, which are because as you know, peace and security or the lack of peace it impacts women of color predominantly as we're seeing even now with infectious disease and a lot of other things. So, and so bringing in the, and so it's, it's very empowering for me to see, you know, young women like the four of you who are in this field because it certainly wasn't like this when I started out. And so I think it's important to keep that going. And so building on what you said about the importance of bringing others up these fields how do you how do you how how do you encourage in your way in your thoughts young women young women of color to encourage them to be in these and and help them understand why national security is important for them yeah at first i, I just want to say bonnie that i 
I'm so grateful for WCAPS. I came back to DC, just as a quick, quick aside. <laughs> in 2018, I had left in 2016 when at least I wasn't aware of WCAPS. And having been back in the past two years, it's totally transformed my experience in the national security space. So I am very grateful. And I wouldn't have known, wouldn't know these, you know, these women if not, if not for that. But then uh, speaking about, you know, how we talk to the the younger generation, I was talking to a group of, of uh, women last week, actually, who I hope will apply to public policy graduate programs. And one, one thing that I try to do, just based on the experience that I've had so far um, in my you know, early to mid career now in this space, is just share the concrete like opportunities that I have had that I've benefited from that I would not ever have known of, if not for you know, the many and oftentimes, you know, white male mentors that I've had in the past who shared information with me or, you know, mentors of different backgrounds, just word of mouth opportunities that I heard about. I feel then compelled to share those with women who were in the same shoes as I was, you know, five, 10 years ago when I just didn't know. So, you know, I, I tell them about concrete opportunities, that op jobs that pay money, you know, like the National Nuclear Security Administration Fellowship. Um, I benefited from the Carnegie Endowment Junior Fellowship and the mentorship and expertise there. I will now tell people about the, the fellowship that I'm participating in through the Department of Defense, the McCain Strategic Defense Fellows Program. So I think just not closing the door to other people, because just because I've walked through it, I want that door to be open <laughs> for other women. And if I can, you know, create more opportunities for them and just expose them to things that I I know that I wouldn't have known about if someone hadn't told me. I feel really compelled and that's that's an important thing for me to do. Great. Does anyone else want to chime in on this one? Oh, sure. I was just going to add, I agree with everything that Lauren said, but I just wanted to add that your question was how to encourage women of color to be part of this field. And I feel like what I try to do is just tell them that their perspective is absolutely necessary and valued. And I think especially as people with underrepresented you know, experiences in the field, sometimes it can be really daunting to enter with new ideas, some of which may not be out there already, especially surrounding, you know, reorienting the discussion on national security to peace, for example, can be controversial, which or sort of sometimes feel unwelcome, but the perspectives are necessary, even if they're not out there already. And in fact, that is not a reflection necessarily on the ideas, a reflection of who's in the in the public intellectual conversation. Something that I've struggled with actually, this like trying to fight the imposter syndrome, is the reason no one has said this idea because it's a stupid idea? Or is it because I'm the only one in the room with my particular set of experiences? And it's a constant balancing act. But I think whenever I do try to talk to folks who are, or, you know, younger women of color trying to enter the space, I try to at least share those experiences that I've struggled with and know that they're not alone, which has been something that has really made a huge difference to me in my, like, in my career so far. Great. Anyone else want to, we have one more question after this, but I wanted to see if uh, anyone else wanted to chime in on this one. I think the points that have kind of already been made on this are, I agree with all of the above, like with both of you, Lauren and Sarah. I do want to highlight, I think, the important, um, importance of mentorship. And maybe, I mean, I, I personally believe each all these women, like, you know, kind of who are on this podcast today, we, I know with both Lauren and Erica from the NNSA, I felt like you guys were peer mentors, but also like a support system while we were going through kind of everyday challenges at the NNSA for us to be able to vent and talk about problems. And 
or challenges that we're facing as women of color in the NNSA and how we kind of kept going or just general things that uh, may not be something that everybody faces or the majority of people at the NNSA face or even understand. So I, I feel it's going to take us also taking these conversations back to our communities and with, within our own homes, within our own families and people. I don't think I ever thought there was a, it was even security policy was a thing. Uh, I was, I, you know, I went to undergrad for chemical engineering. I kind of always thought like, to, my, the cultural thing was you either do medicine or you do engineering or you do law. Policy was never an option on the table. And it never was something that I even knew was a thing that I could pursue moving forward. So for me to kind of have found myself in this space happened because, well, you know, by some sort of luck, but also because of a mentor and then another mentor and then another mentor, and then people who kind of just kind of kept talking and sharing the space. And then Bonnie, like WCAPS has provided such an incredible space for women to find opportunities to network. It was at a WCAPS event where I met Michelle, who told me about the National Nuclear Security Administration Graduate Fellowship Program, you know, apply to this thing. And it was, I, I do think there's some power in kind of women who can understand the challenges of being a minority in the space to kind of help each other navigate the space and what to do next, kind of encourage each other to not give up when you do feel like an imposter in the space because you can relate to each other on that particular thing, but then also tell each other how to overcome it. Great. I think for our last question, I'll ask, what is it that you would like to see change? What is, I mean, a year from now, Let's say in the national security space, what, what is it that you would like to see have changed? Who wants to start that one? Maybe I'll offer something. I think one thing I would really like to see change is more of a normalization around grappling with the racial implications of your chosen subject matter expertise in national security. So how is U.S. policy on a particular issue affected by race? How is it perpetuating or upending racial inequalities, both in America, but also abroad? Our foreign policies sometimes have disproportionate effects on different populations. And I would just love to see national security experts incorporate it into their like regular discussions about how to weigh different options and how to move forward for American security, but also with just an understanding of the human cost of a lot of our policies. I mean, I feel like that has the added benefit of that's a sort of personal pledge. And I have tried to do that myself and doesn't necessarily require like buy-in of an institution or any of the sort of longer term massive institutional changes that we've been talking about, things are surrounding recruitment or, you know, paying interns and things that have been perpetual issues. But this is just like the conversation surrounding national security needs to have a more holistic view of, of what it really is. I love that. And, and I, if I could just add on to that, because I think, you know, my response definitely aligns with the idea of continuing to have the discussion and it be just a regular part of our, you know, work professional lives. But also, you know, we, we've, we've had these conversations and they take place every now and then when it comes to some of the conferences and meetings, but this should always be a part of the discussion and even in the most technical rooms. I mean, we don't need to just, and also 
not just, you know, have this discussion and have all panelists sort of look the same. We need to sort of where we've started and the idea is that there's not just one group where the solutions lie. In fact, it's all of us. So how do we, you know, just making sure that it is a prevalent conversation. It is a fundamental conversation in the workplace from our teams, you know, to our everyday teams that we're working with, to the supervisor and the executive level of the organizations that we're a part of, and into the international spaces as well, and to the conferences that we're a part of. I think it really does need to sort of thread through all of these different spaces and not just sort of a one-off, you know, let's make it a part of our everyday lives because we've seen a lot of organizations adopt diversity and inclusion as a value, but how do we make sure that we actually see this happening as what is mentioned and come on and really, you know, having very real solutions and real actions. And also, you know, once we've talked about it, you know, what are, what are the metrics around this? You know, what, are we challenging ourselves to always bring, you know, what do our numbers say? What does our workforce look like? Like, let's, let's bring the data as well to ensure that we're holding ourselves accountable for these actions and for these values. Yeah. I would just add on and fully agree with what both Sarah and Erica said. And I think to the point about conversations, maybe in just one year, and this, this seems somewhat like a small goal, but I think I would just like for the national security space to con- to feel uncomfortable when people are in rooms that are homogenous. When you're in a room and you see people that all look like you and you don't have a diversity of perspectives represented, at least through the, the metric of race and diversity, I, I would like that to feel uncomfortable to, to the establishment, you know, here in DC and elsewhere because that's the current status quo that has been this that has been the status quo forever and going forward i i want that not to feel quote normal anymore i personally would like to see us we need to stop inheriting the ideas and the theories that have been driving national security particularly like on the kind of harder national security side and we can only challenge that when we have a more diverse room of people where we can all contribute to issues that individually affect our national security and our communities and their security. And till we do that, we can't really change the substance of what it is that we practice in the national security space. And we can't really shift our priorities on what is important because it seems like right now those priorities have just always been set that way and passed down decade after decade after decade. And it, it's Till we recognize that those priorities only benefit a certain, basically the top of the pyramid in this hierarchy, but there's a lot of issues that are impacting people at, at the bottom of that pyramid who are being ignored and not represented in the national security space. We're not going to basically be having a, national, a security that is secure for all of us. And uh, just one question, whether on that point, because it's a really good one, is I also and working on this solidarity project. I mean, how do you, how, how in your view do you help them understand that? I mean, it's, it's, it's a challenge because it's something that, you know, if you're not in this community, you don't know. So, you know, how do you help them understand 
that that's something that's necessary? That's a good question. I wish we, if there's one other thing that I wish we could change is, is having more conversations with our public on some of our national security issues. I don't know if our, you know, somebody I speak to in, let's say, someplace in Georgia, would, do they care that much about nuclear weapons issues or chemical weapons use in Syria or other things that I spend a lot of time thinking about in D.C.? Do they care about those issues or do they care about COVID-19 or do they care about gun violence? Are their children being able to go to school safely? I feel what we're doing right now is we're not listening. We're just kind of in an echo chamber talking and kind of spiraling those ideas and those basically the, the things that we think are important. We're just talking to each other about it without thinking about what's important to the person the people right now who are just waiting to go but get back to regular life, but they're on pause because of COVID-19, because maybe we should have been focusing on our public health system a little bit more, or the response to this pandemic a little bit more. Maybe we should have been more prepared for a pandemic than kind of spending so much on other priorities, which clearly, you know, all the money we spend on deterrence is not really helping in this particular regard. So maybe we should be stop and listen, should stop and look internally into our communities and what are their needs. And we can't do that till we acknowledge everybody's opinions and points of views. And for us, for those of us in, the, in, the, in D.C., in the think tank space or in government, that, that would require us to start having conversations and exchanging ideas and listening. And you can't do that unless you have a diverse room of people. So, Vanya, I really appreciate you doing this org- organization and solidarity initiative because I think it's just the start of it's also a solution to the problem for us to be able to diversify our spaces more, our conversations more, give a new perspective to organizations that are interested in changing the things that we talk about and consider important in national security. Great. Wow. This has been a wonderful uh, conversation. So I just want to say goodbye. Before I say goodbye, I just want to, if anyone has any last thoughts before we, before we sign off, uh, this is an opportunity. To talk to your counterparts in this area. Don't feel pressured. I just wanted to, <laughs> if you had any last thoughts. I guess I would just echo something that Warda said a while back, which is that I think improving national security and, you know, and sort of the legacy of racism and the, the very real effects of racism now really takes a personal commitment. And I think it's worth just what I would suggest to folks and, and something I'm trying to do myself is just commit to doing something small and sustainable, but regular and long lasting. And that can be a variety of different things. We've talked about many of them already. One could be mentorship, which I think is really, really important. Mentorship and advocacy for people of color. Even if you yourself are not a person of color, that, that can actually be the most impactful. Reaching out to participate in local or nationwide advocacy in very small ways from calling your you know, local reps to your national reps on issues that affect black and brown communities. Something I've been trying to do every so often, just like a 30 minute a day regular commitment or joining or even starting a working group at your particular organization or community that is committed to concrete tasks that will improve the experiences of people of color in your particular community, which can be probably 
the most rewarding sorts of things that you can do with your time. Yeah. And my lasting thought would just be to don't be afraid to have the discussion. Don't allow fear to be the thing that stops you from asking the questions that you want to ask in a, in a safe place. That is the first step where even if you don't have, the, if you don't believe you have the right word, you know, I think we should just not be afraid to feel that level of discomfort or to feel uncomfortable, as Lauren mentioned earlier. And to the other folks who are out there, always just have to leave the message who, if you are a woman of color, a man of color who are in, who's in the national security space, knowing that you have folks, so there's a few of us here, but there's a community, WCAPS is one of them, that is there to support you in this journey. We are not doing, we don't have to do it alone. So please reach out and take full advantage of the support that is available to you. Yeah, I love all of that. Would just echo that yeah, for me personally, you know, having mentors reach out during this time, you know, because with the confluence of issues, whether it be COVID-19 and the issues of racial justice affecting our country, yeah, just showing, you know, that they care about me as an individual, that that has definitely made an, an impact. And I, I would encourage others to do that if you have, um, you know, people of color that you know and who are you're close to, you can reach out to. And then I'll, I'll, the last thing I'll add is something that I, I heard in a conversation maybe a month ago when, um, you know, a, a prominent figure was asked, you know, what can he do as a, as a white man to make a difference in this time? And the African-American person challenged him and said, what would you do if this were affecting, if these issues of racial justice were affecting you or they were affecting your son and your son was, you know, in the, in the position that George Floyd was, like you would act differently. What would that mean? That'll mean something different to each and every one of us. But that's, you know, I think that's, that's the bigger issue. We should all see each other as, you know, fellow members of humanity. It shouldn't be that an issue that affects, as Lorda was saying earlier, one community does not affect another. What would you do if this affected you? I think we could all come up with some maybe more urgent things that we would do if it were affecting each and every one of us. And that's how we should be looking at each of these issues. I was going to just like add on to what Lauren was just saying about you know, what can we do? An issue that affects all of us, you know. I, I personally want to touch on a point that Sarah had brought up earlier in this in this kind of podcast was as no, a non-black kind of ally, it's important for us to kind of take those tough conversations back within our communities of color and acknowledge some of the issues that we have within our communities of color. For anybody who's seen Indian matchmaking recently that's probably a good way to just draw on some of the issues that we have of systemic racism in the Indian matchmaking system, but then also how our culture generally perceives color and how we need to kind of address that, call it out for what it is. You know, we need to, we need to have some really tough conversations in our culture. Until we do that, nobody else is going to bring that change until we bring it from within ourselves. And so... I, I did want to kind of say, I, people after George Floyd was murdered, there were some, you know, wonderful white male kind of colleagues and allies who reached out to make sure I'm okay. But I wanted to also acknowledge that this, that movement is a Black Lives Matter movement. I, I feel the pain just having known what it means on the receiving end of discrimination, but I don't understand the pain of a Black man at the hands of the police. And I just want to want my black friends and, you know, my black brothers and sisters to know that 
I am an ally. I will try as much as possible to do whatever I can to fix the issue in my non-Black community. And I hope that within that pyramid, we all recognize where we are on it and acknowledge that the problem starts at the top and seeps to the bottom. And we need to do whatever we can to fix the problem wherever we are on it. And that's just kind of, I think my thought is we need to be allies, not only as non-people of color, but also with, within the people of color community. So thanks, Warda. Thanks, Lauren. Thanks, Sarah. And thanks, Erica. For what I think has been a really good conversation and one that I hope that we can continue. And I think, as all of you have been saying, this is something that we have to keep doing. And it's not going to be changed until we are, you know, making it a part of something that we're, we're, we're willing to do, but also to have these kind of conversations with those who are non-people of color to help them understand exactly some of the things that we're experiencing, some of the things that we're feeling. So I think this is a great idea, Warda and Lauren. So I'm really glad that that you pursued this, and I'm glad that we had Sarah and Erica to join us in this conversation. So thanks again, and I hope that we will have another one of these conversations very soon. Thank you.